I've been here a couple of times before now. We got to be here last week and lead worship up here, which was such a, a blessing to us. So thank you for wel- welcoming us. I got to, I preached here last fall, and it's always a good sign when you get invited back as a guest preacher. You come into a place as a guest preacher, you come in, you say your piece, and then you leave. And you're kind of always left going like, I really hope that took. And I hope I didn't make too much fun of Craig or something like that, which I want to do. Um, So it's always a good sign when you're invited back. So it's good to be here. Thanks for having us. I am going to be speaking on, as the title says, this audacious claim, the secret of contentment. And so we're going to do that from the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And it's really his last big point in his letter to the Philippian church. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verses 10 through 13. Paul writes this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, I hope, I hope that we can all think of a time when we were, were in a bind and somebody generously came through for us. Take a second and think of a time in your life, maybe you were down on your luck, out of work, not enough money to pay the bills, maybe sick in hospital, whatever it might be, and somebody, be it a friend or a family member, a church member, or even a total stranger, somebody was there for you in that moment with either a place to stay or a note of encouragement or a blessed gift brought to your door, whatever it might have been. And the interesting question is always, how do you repay someone for generosity like that, right? I, I love coffee, and I love to make really good coffee at home. This is a little personal hobby of mine. And, and so over the years, it's kind of this process of wanting to improve my coffee set up at home. And there's this kettle. There's this kettle, and I know this sounds very uninteresting. I know. I just want to acknowledge I know, okay? I'm aware. There's this kettle. It's just, yeah, see, there's a picture of it. How beautiful is that? I know it's a pretentious kettle. I probably eyed this kettle for like seven years without buying it. It's like, you know, it's electric. You can set what temperature you want it to get to. It'll heat it up to that temperature and then hold it there for you. It's amazing, amazing stuff. So it's great for pour over coffee, which I love to make at home. I eyed this kettle for like seven years, but it's very expensive as a pastor. You know, I got to choose wisely where I spend my funds. So I, I had never bought it. And when I wrapped up, when we wrapped up our time at our old church, our young adults community brought me up on the stage at this one point and presented me with this gift. And it was this kettle. I remember opening the gift and it's one of those high pressure moments where you're opening a gift in front of everybody and in front of everybody who got it for you. It's this high pressure moment. And I open it, it's this kettle, and I'm just like blown away. And in front of everybody, I'm in one of those moments where you're like, what do I say here? 
How do I repay you for this generosity? Now, for starters, we say what? Thank you. It's quite simple. For starters, you begin there. But what in the world is there to say in those moments other than thank you? And as a quick aside, I think it's so much of what our worship to God is about in the church, right? It's an overflow of really all we can say in response to his gracious gift to us is thank you. And this is kind of what's going on with Paul as he concludes his letter to the Philippian church. As, as you might know, if you've, if you've done much study in Philippians before, Paul is imprisoned, likely in Rome as he writes this letter. He's in Rome as an enemy of the state for preaching the gospel, this gospel that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so he's a traitor to the empire imprisoned in Rome. And in the context of this time, when you're imprisoned, you're completely on your own for all of your sustenance, your food, your drink, your provisions, whatever provisions you need, you're on your own. And so you think about that. Take a second and think about that. You are completely dependent upon friends and family to come through for you in this moment of need. Don't start looking around at your friends and family around you and kind of going like, would you be there for me if I needed you? I'm hoping you're never in that predicament. But Paul's been an itinerant preacher. So he's been traveling around preaching. And so he's at the heart of the empire in Rome, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, which would have been his home where his family and friends were. He is all alone, literally starving to death in this Roman isolation. And then one day as he's in this situation out of nowhere, his door opens and this guy named Epaphroditus walks in. And Epaphroditus has, has arrived from Philippi, which seems to be well over 800 miles away which in that day was not just like a quick two-hour flight to get there. This would have been a serious trek. And Epaphroditus has come from this church in Philippi that Paul had planted years before. And here Epaphroditus shows up and he's brought food. He's got water, money, clothing, all the provisions that Paul needs. And Paul is literally saved from death by these gifts from Philippi. And Paul's then left in that follow-up moment where you're just like, what do I say? How do I repay this kind of generosity? Like, I don't think a little keychain from the Colosseum gift shop's gonna be enough to repay you for this trip to Rome. So Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. And, and his main motivation, one of his main motivations for writing it is just a way to say Thank you. And it's at the end of this letter in chapter four that we really see this most enacted. The ending kind of reads a bit like a glorified thank you note. And so I want us to work through that just a little bit very slowly. So look at verse 10. With that context in mind, Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. I've rejoiced greatly in the Lord. This word rejoice can also be translated as, as a celebration. I've had a great celebration in the Lord. Now, now remind me again, where is Paul as he writes this? He's a prisoner far from home, but he writes, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord because of you. 
This is Paul putting into practice what he's been teaching all throughout this letter to the Philippian church. This is Paul doing the stuff that he's writing about. He says, I've had this great celebration in the Lord. I've rejoiced because at last you renewed your concern for me. And he says, indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by that last part of this verse, why they had no opportunity. It might just be because they were 800 miles away and Paul was essentially off the grid. It might have been because the Philippians were, were quite poor, so there was some time required to build up the necessary funds and, and resources to help Paul in his time of need. We're not totally sure, but in essence... Paul is saying, look, you didn't have an opportunity to show it, but you were concerned about me. And that has become so abundantly clear now. So thank you. Thank you, Epaphroditus. Thank you, Philippian church. Your gifts, your money, your food literally saved my life. You were the family that I needed to depend on for my life and you came through. So thank you. But then it gets really interesting. Look as he continues. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Sorry, pardon me, Paul. What do you mean you're not saying this because you're in need? Of course you're in need. As we've been over this, you're in prison. We've been over this. You're just about as in need as anyone could possibly be. But he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And he continues, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Meaning I wasn't down, crying sad or angry tears, miserable, shouting at God, breaking apart my faith in prison because of what had been done to me. He's like, no, I was having a great celebration in the Lord and starving to death, but having a great celebration in the Lord nonetheless. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances and look, he continues in verse 12. For I know what it is to be in need, to be down and out, in poverty, health failing, all alone. Yeah, I know what that's like, frankly, probably better than most of you. Read the book of Acts, I get it. He says, but I also know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to have more than enough. Food to spare, money to spare, roof over my head, a job, friends, family, to be part of a thriving, passionate church, living in harmony and in unity. Yeah, I know what that is like. I know both. I know both sides of this equation. And then this is where Paul starts to sound a little bit like, like a wellness blogger. You might read on like a WordPress site or something today. You know, like three steps to a more peaceful life. Or five life hacks that'll transform the way you live. You ever read any of these kind of articles? You know, I changed this one habit and now I'm aging in reverse. You know, these kind of like real baiting headlines. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. I've learned the secret of being content. If that's not a baiting headline, I don't know what is. The secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Just subscribe to my mailing list, right? Anyone in this room this morning feel like they could use that secret? I know I do. I know I do. This whole week, as, as I was preparing to preach this sermon here at the bridge, 
I was really struck by my own lack of authority to preach a sermon like this one. So I just want you to know I'm preaching to myself first and foremost today because I feel very far from being able to say confidently, I've found the secret of contentment. I am 100% content. I don't want more money. I don't want a better job. I don't want more stuff. I don't want more square footage. I don't want to someday be able to own a house in this crazy city. No, not me. I'm 100% content. Can you say that? Like, I, I cannot. Contentment's such an elusive thing, am I right? And what blows my mind about this passage is that nothing about Paul's circumstances say he should be content. Not even by our present day metrics. He's not rich, he's in poverty. He's not famous, if anything, he's infamous. He's wanted by the government. He's not married, he's single. In fact, most scholars assume that he was likely a widower. He's not in good health, his body's failing. He's been stoned too many times. Not in our modern day parlance, but he's been stoned too many times. Think about when he talks about the the thorn in the flesh. His health is failing him. Nothing about Paul's circumstances say that he should be content. Here's a guy imprisoned, dirt poor, bad health, future looking bleak, and he's saying, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. Listen, I've learned the secret to being content. That right there is the kind of guy you want to learn a thing or two about contentment from, am I right? So let's try to do that briefly this morning. Let's try to learn a few things from Paul about contentment. So here's a few thoughts on contentment from this text from Paul. The first one is contentment is something you learn. Contentment is something you learn. Look at the language Paul uses. Verse 11, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, right? Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. See, contentment's not not natural. It's not this default setting for human beings. Think all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, the very beginning. They've got this whole garden full of luscious fruit trees all at their disposal. They can just consume at their heart's content, but they're given one stipulation, one tree, don't eat from it. And what do they do in this life of lavish luxury? They just have to eat from that one tree that they're not allowed to. In a world full of yeses, of divine gifts and beauty, there will always be something just out of your reach. Sure, life's okay now, but, but when I get married, then... You know, I'll, be, I'll really be happy. I'll really be content. Or life's good now, but, but, but really when I graduate from school, then I'll finally be able to like exhale. Or, or when I get that job stability I've been working so hard for. Or when we're done raising our kids and they're moved out. I'm not saying that's me. I'm just getting started. That would be really, really troubling. Maybe, that, maybe that's where we're at. And, and there will always be something that's just out of reach. That's the way that desire works, right? I like to explain it this way. Have you ever been driving in a car where the person in control of the music has musical ADD? And what I mean by this is you're, you're driving, you're jamming to a song, and the song's just really getting going, right? You're starting to really get into it. 
It's building. It's starting to get to that like beautiful, like, oh yeah, it's starting to drive. It's really getting going. And you're finally like, yeah, we're about to arrive at that like climactic moment in the song. And right as it's about to get there, it's like, oh, we're on that rush towards it. The person in control of the music decides, eh, I'm bored of this song. And they click on to the next one. And you're just left with this like, I was almost there. Like you're like, you're really grooving. It's about to get to that beautiful moment in the song. And now it's some other beat starts and you're like, what are we doing here? I like to describe that the human condition as that moment when the song's about to reach its fullness and just before it gets there, it's cut off. You're about to arrive there and it's taken away. This, by the way, if you can't tell, is one of my big pet peeves. So if you're ever driving in a car with me, just keep that in mind, you know? Just keep that in mind. That's the human condition, right? Right in that moment of, ah, so close is the human condition. Almost there, almost at rest. I just need a little bit more here and a little bit more there. And there will always be that kind of unfinished feeling. There will always be something just out of reach. That's a promise. I took my my daughter, who's almost two now, I took her to a park a while back. It was this park in Mount Pleasant. And, And her and I were just hanging out. We get to this park and they had four baby swings. This is very rare. Like usually there's like two baby swings at a park. This park had four baby swings. Very rare. And I made this this big parental mistake. Learn from my mistakes. Don't do this. I made this big parental mistake of getting to the swings and allowing my daughter to choose which of the four swings she wanted to use. Don't do this. It leads to like five solid minutes of her humming and hawing over which of the four swings she wanted to go in. Now, they're all the same, completely identical swings. They're all available to her. But we go back and forth down the line. Oh, swing number one, no. Eventually, we finally settle on swing number three. This is the one she finally settles on. So I put my daughter in swing number three, and we're swinging, we're having a great time. Just wonderful. She's having the time of her life. After a little while, this mom shows up with her, with her son, who's a little bit older than my daughter. They show up. She takes her son and plops her son down in swing number four. And I kid you not, the second this little boy got into swing number four, I could see it in my daughter's eyes, everything had changed. There was this look in her eye. And now she's looking over at this kid in swing number four. And I'm like, oh no, what's about to go down? (laughs) She's looking at the kid in swing four, and I can tell now she wants swing number four. She starts to reach out for the kid as we're swinging. I'm like, no, 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 we can't do that but something has changed. And it's one of those things, it's like, Wesley, you had all of the options before you. You made your choice. Swing number four is no different than swing number three. We're having a wonderful time. But for whatever reason, once this kid got into swing number four, now that's all she wanted. And it's funny, you notice the role that comparison plays in our discontentment, even in the life of my one-year-old daughter. It shows up very early. There will always be that other kid in your life. There will always be someone older than you or someone younger than you or better looking than you or cooler, smarter, more educated, more successful than you. You will never be the best. I'm just here to encourage this morning. (laughs) There will always be someone ahead of you or better than you and you'll never be content until you learn to put to death comparison. 
Because there will always be somebody or something just out of your reach. It's the insatiable nature of human desire. And this is why we have to learn to be content. It's something you have to learn. It's not a natural posture. Paul says it's something that he has learned. The thing about learning is that learning's hard work. There any students in the room can affirm what I'm saying. Learning is hard work. I've been a grad school student for, I'm not even going to tell you how long. I've been a grad school student for a long time, years. It's hard work. The time, the energy, the willpower, the time management, it's hard work to learn. Paul says, I worked at it, but with time I learned the secret of being content. But the beauty of that for us, before we move on to the next lesson, the beauty of that for us, as daunting as that can feel, is that he's then not saying that it was just some epiphany that he got, and hopefully you get the same epiphany. The beauty of it for us is that if Paul can learn it, you and I can learn it. You have the same spirit in you as Paul. If Paul can learn it, I can learn it. I have the same spirit in me as Paul. Your life is a laboratory and you are a student. And every day, friends, at that job that you want to quit, or every day at that school that you're tired of, or every day in that marriage that isn't healthy right now, every day is a chance to test and probe and examine and learn the secret of being content. Second lesson from Paul. Contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. I love what Paul says, look verse 11. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether I'm single or married, whether I'm poor or employed in a job that I love, whether I'm renting a tiny apartment or I live in my dream home, I've learned the secret in any and every situation, whatever the circumstances. In the ancient Near East, the language that's used here is content. But I'd argue that in our day, it might, it might be happy. Our, our culture loves to use this word happy. We subscribe to this formula that says, when I get X, then I'll be happy. When I get more money, when I get this house, when I travel the world, when I quit my job, then I'll be content or happy. But we all know it's not true, right? And if you don't, you will. It's a myth, it's not true. Because the second you get to the goal, what happens? The goalpost moves, right? A little bit further down the road. So you can have been working at a goal for years, your whole life. You can be working towards this goal for decades. And you finally get to that goal and you achieve it and you live in it and it's glorious for like a day. And then your mind's filled up with what's next, right? Okay, but but what now? What's the next thing? When you're in high school, it's like, I just can't wait to be done high school. I can move on to the things in life. Then you get to, you just want to go to college. Then you get to college. Like, I just can't wait till I'm done and I can get a job. Then you get a job. Then you're like, I just can't get to, wait to get a real job. Then you get a real job and it's a promotion. It's a promotion. Then it's the dreams you have for retirement, whatever it is. Then you want to get married and you want to buy a house and you want to have kids. And then you want your kids to move out and it just keeps going and going. And the world's conception of our dreams and desires are a carrot on a stick, right? It's always right there, right in front of us. You can almost taste it, but the closer you get to it, it continues to be just out of reach. 
That's why Paul says, if you're not content now, no change in your circumstances will ever get you there. If you're not content now, no change in your circumstances will ever get you there. If you're not content single, will you be content married? Married couples in the room? No, right? You don't have to answer that. If you're not content in college, will you be content in a career? And you might be going, ah, I think I'm the exception to the rule. I doubt it. I doubt it. If you're not content before kids, will you suddenly be content when they're up all night screaming, you haven't slept in days, and you still have to juggle all the other things in life that you were already dealing with? Why do we even think that makes sense? But we tell ourselves this is true. You're not the exception to the rule. And the trouble is that discontentment robs you of joy because it robs you of the ability to celebrate the goodness of God in the moment. I heard one teacher describe contentment as not a destination, but a mode of travel. Like contentment is not some city or destination out on the horizon that we'll one day hopefully get to in the future. It's more like an airplane or a car. It's a way you move through the universe. It's a mode of travel. Now, will some moments in your life be easier to be content than others? Of course, it's a no-brainer. But as a general rule, here we find a guy imprisoned, likely going to die there. And he says, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. It's not dependent on your circumstances. Now, lastly, three points, like a pro. Contentment is a struggle in times of lack and in times of plenty. This one's odd to us, I think. Contentment is a struggle in times of lack and in times of plenty. Look at the way verse 12 reads. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul actually says, I've learned to be content in plenty. What? One version says, I've learned to cope with having too much. Personally, I've not found this to be a struggle myself. But why on earth does Paul say that? Well, I think it's because Paul's smart. He's an intelligent man, and he knows the way that money works. And money works this way, is that the more you have, the more you want. Am I right? I remember when I was a student in college, I had moved to Chicago to go to undergrad. And so I basically put all the money that I had and had saved up into like getting to Chicago and doing my years of undergrad there. So while I was there, I had no money. I was working as an intramural referee at school. Doesn't pay that well at a Bible college. People aren't that good at sports. So, um, and so I'm working just to get by. I don't have money. Like, and so things just weren't options for me. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the things that I could buy, the cool smartphone that I could get. I was living with this little silver flip phone it was well beyond the days of when flip phones were like around. I don't know how I even found one, but I'm using the silver flip phone. I'm like pressing each button four times to get a letter, you know, one of those things. And I wasn't thinking about all of the gadgets or the things that I could buy or the dream car that I couldn't wait to go and purchase. It wasn't an option, so it didn't fill my mind. But I remember when I graduated from college and I moved back to BC and I started a salary job as a single guy and suddenly like things were options. I didn't have a lot of money, but I had some. And things were options suddenly. And now all of a sudden my mind was filled up. 
Well, what if, what if I got this? What if I bought that? Well, well obviously I, I need this. Well, obviously I need to get, to get an iPad mini, obviously, well, of course. And your, your mind's just filled up with these things that suddenly they're options. Because the human desire for more is insatiable and you're sucked in and your mind's filled up with all the things you don't have. There's a famous line from John Rockefeller who's known as maybe the richest man in the history of America. And he was once asked, how much money is enough? And his famous answer was, just a little bit more. There's a, there's a proverb that speaks to this in Proverbs chapter 30, verses seven to nine. It says, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. How many of us have ever prayed that? I have not, I can assure you. Give me not poverty, sure, yeah, I like that first part, I pray that. But give me not riches. Well, God, I think I can handle riches, you know? I'll use it for your glory, God, I promise. I think I can handle it. But seriously, how many of us have prayed that? I have not. God, don't give me poverty. Don't give me riches. Give me just what I need for today. I think for most of us, that sounds like a recipe for all kinds of anxiety, frankly. But not only does the writer of the Proverbs say that, but they say, if I had to narrow it down to two prayers, this would be one of them. We also see this in Ecclesiastes, which I know you guys are in a series on Ecclesiastes, so this fits well. Ecclesiastes chapter five, the writer says this, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Because when you have money, when you have stuff, you worry about your money. You worry about the stock market where you've invested. You worry about the well-being of your things, etc., etc. I can, I can testify to this, back to, the, back to the kettle I was telling you about before, because yeah, I know you want me to talk more about a kettle. Um, when, after, after I received this kettle, I'll never forget the first week using it. It was like incredible. I was like, this is everything I ever hoped it would be. But it was funny, I remember the first morning I used it, and I'm walking around drinking my coffee, and I look over, and it's this like matte black kettle, right? I look over, and there's this like white mark on it. And I flipped. I like ran across the room. What has happened? Have I already chipped my kettle? And I book it across the room and I get there. And it's, oh, it's just a fluff. It's just a fluff. <laughs> but I was so worried, right? Now, the kettle I had before was this cheap, like $20 Amazon thing with a gooseneck. Let me tell you, that thing was banged up, marked, so gross, I did not care. But there's a contrast of how we care about the things that we get, the things that we have. And that's why the writer of Ecclesiastes says, as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. You worry about your money. You worry about your stuff. It's not all it's cracked up to be. Because the goal is to celebrate life as a gift. Whatever it is that you have or whatever it is that you don't have, and that contentment is a challenge wherever you land on that spectrum. That's what Paul's telling us. That desire for more, that thirst is insatiable and contentment or happiness will always be just out of reach. And I don't know about you, but I want out of that narrative. I want out of that rat race. I'm tired of it. 
And Paul says, I found the secret to being content. And I want that secret. So how do we do it? What is his answer? What is the secret? Well, the secret is explained in the last verse of this section, in verse 13. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It turns out the secret has a name. Through him who gives me strength, through King Jesus. The living God who is found in flesh and blood as Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, I can do all this through him who gives me the strength. Now, I'm sure you've heard this verse before in your life. People do a lot of weird things with this verse. I'm sure you've seen this verse a lot of places in a lot of contexts. I'm very, I, I love sports. I played a lot of sports growing up. This verse is like an athlete's playground. This verse is used by athletes everywhere. Oh, yeah, through the strength of Christ, I can win this football game. Tim Tebow, as this football player, famously wore Philippians 4.13 on his eye blacks, which is ironic because it's like part of it is functional for the sun, but mostly it's for intimidation. And here he's got this, but anyway... But it's so used out of context by athletes and many other people all over the place. The subtext in that use being, God's strength is going to bring me this victory. Through Christ who strengthens me, I can win this football game. Apparently, Christ didn't strengthen me very much when I used to play soccer. I'll just say that. But we also hear it used a lot of other places in less funny, less obviously funny ways. It's often this like self-motivational pump-up verse to take on my big challenges in life. The subtext there often being like this kind of magic Christ-infused superpower to allow you to achieve all your goals. I can do anything through Christ. And it isn't wrong. It's not untrue. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit, by his strength in us, we can do far more than we could ever imagine. So don't hear me wrong on that. It's not untrue. But the secret here in Philippians 4.13 is not actually referring to some magic Christ-infused superpower to achieve all your goals. The secret of Philippians 4.13 is actually about joy in the midst of adversity. I can do all this through him who who gives me strength. This verse that we see in here absolutely everywhere to empower all the dreams and goals imaginable in its context is actually talking about contentment regardless of what we achieve or fail to achieve. And odds are that's actually a lot harder than winning a football game. In context, he's saying, I can be content right here, right now, imprisoned, scraping by with mere survival on my to-do list. I can be content, at peace, happy. It is enough through him who gives me the strength. He gives me the strength. Paul lived in a moment with a strong wave of stoicism that preached like self-sufficiency and detachment from desires. This was the gist of Stoicism in his day. Kind of much like Buddhism would preach in our day and much of the New Age movement that we see around us. But in a culture of detachment from desire that Paul found himself in and self-sufficiency, Paul's saying, don't detach from your desires. God made you with desires. But in dependency, not self-sufficiency, put or attach your desires to Jesus. Desire him. 
Put or attach your desires to Jesus. Desire his kingdom. Put your desires in his good news of the kingdom of God at hand. Take all of your drive and your ambition and your work ethic and your craving for more. Take all of that. Funnel that. Don't detach. Funnel that. Put that into Jesus because he is where contentment is found. That phrase, through him who gives me strength, the word through is a preposition and it can mean either through or in. Meaning I can do all this, I can be content in any and all circumstances in him, in Jesus, in humble, sustaining, honest intimacy with the God who knows all of our wants and our dreams and our desires and also knows how far we feel from reaching them. Contentment in all circumstances can be found in a symbiotic relationship with the eternal king of the universe. He is where contentment is found because he alone is enough. I once heard James K.A. Smith, one of my favorite authors, say this phrase. It may have been borrowed, I don't know. But he said, discontentment comes when we place infinite value in finite things. When we place infinite value in finite things. And what that means for us is that the only place that contentment then can be found is in the one and only truly infinite thing. And that is the one and only truly infinite being. That is the God of creation. That is Yahweh. That is in Jesus. The desires of this world and finite things are, to borrow language from Ecclesiastes, striving after wind. They're a carrot on a string. But Jesus is enough. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Like I said earlier, friends, I have maybe never felt more like I'm preaching a sermon specifically to myself than I do this morning. The grip of the world is strong. Desire is insatiable, and it's really hard work to combat it. It is a long process of learning to reorient our desires But the promise is he is enough and he alone is enough. Do you believe that this morning? You can be content right here, right now with all that you have and with all that you don't have. Not in six months, not in six years, not when you graduate, not when you get married, not when you get a house, not when you get the right job, right here, right now, because he is enough. And learning to live at his pace and reorienting our desires day by day around his kingdom vision, no matter what moment in the journey we find ourselves at, this is the secret of contentment. And we look at Paul's life, Paul who's teaching us this, we look at Paul's life and Paul's life is all about Jesus. Paul's like, I'm having a great celebration in who? In Jesus, in the Lord, not in the money that you brought, Epaphroditus, not in the food or drink that you brought, because at last you renewed your concern for me, because you lived out the gospel, because you got on the gospel agenda. Paul's rejoicing in the Lord. He's working his tail off for the sake of the gospel. He's imprisoned for it. And he's rejoicing in the Lord because his life is all about Jesus, all about the gospel of the kingdom of God. And if and when you and I get to that place, where we are all about Jesus, 
where we are all about his kingdom work in our lives, in our relationships, and our minds are filled not with this thing or with that thing that we want to get, but all with his vision for our lives, his vision for our families, his vision for our workplaces and our city, when we're all about his agenda for our world, when we get to that place, friends, he is enough. And that's the secret of contentment. So I want to close with a confession. Back to the kettle, because just one more time, I know you want to hear more about it. Confession about the kettle. I used it for like two days. Like I said, I freaked out about the fluff. I used it for two days. After two days, no joke, I'm using it, I'm making coffee. And I kid you not, this really happened. What did I do the second day I was using it to make coffee? I started Google searching how I could get a better scale to improve my coffee setup. It's like, how else can I improve? Now that I have this, this is great and all, but how else can I improve my coffee setup now that I have this? I'm saying I get it. And I feel like the last person to be worthy of preaching a sermon on being content in Jesus, I don't have that boldness of Paul standing up here telling you that I found the secret and learned to be content in all circumstances. I so regularly get caught up in what I want to see God do, what I want to see myself do, what I want for my future, basically all the things that I don't yet have. I get so caught up in those rather than focusing on the moment, focusing on the here and now and thanking God and having a great celebration in the Lord for what I do have, beginning with Jesus. And it robs me and it robs each of us, friends, of joy. Joy. Joy amidst adversity. It's what Paul's been talking about all throughout his letter to Philippians. Joy amidst adversity. And he says, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Or in him who gives me strength. He is enough. And I, I leave you with the question, do we believe that this morning, friends? Let me pray for us. Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before anything else, Lord, I just thank you that you are enough. Thank you that you are enough. And even if this morning, right here in this room, right now, for many of us here, that simply means knowing that in our minds and affirming it with words, but feeling so far from that place in our hearts, even still, we get to know that you are enough that if we allow ourselves on this journey of centering all of our lives around you and your kingdom vision for our relationships and our work and our families, that we can know via a promise from your word that you are enough. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. And God, I just pray for each person in this room wrestling with contentment wrestling with the desires on their heart for even good things. We desire good things so often. But even these longings and desires for good things rob us of joy and the realization and acknowledgement of the good things in this moment. Chief among those being your presence with us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, may you give us prescription glasses to see this world through your kingdom vision, to see the things before us that you've given us, to see you at work in our day-to-day -day lives. 
And Lord, we repent of all the ways that we continue to long and desire and seek after all kinds of things that are not of you. Lord, we repent of that and we lay that at your feet. Do a work in our hearts, Lord. May we become people like Paul who are so sold out for your presence in our lives and what you're doing in and through us that we are content in any and every situation, whether having plenty or in great want. Lord, we submit ourselves to you and we pray that you would do that powerful work by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word or if you're wanting to reach out to pray or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know more of him and make him known today. We'd love to hear more from you. Thank you.